Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are kind of impossible to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very excited that we have Jessica Keener with us. She's going to share the first pages of her debut novel, Night Swim, which was just re-released in March in a 10th anniversary edition. So we get to revisit her first novel after she's done several other novels. Good morning, Jessica. Morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on the show. Jessica Keener's debut novel, Night Swim, was a national bestseller, which was followed by an award-winning collection of stories, Women in Bed. Her second novel, Strangers in Budapest, was an indie next pick, an entertainment weekly, best new book, and a Southern Independent Bookseller Association bestseller. Her features have appeared in the Boston Globe, Agni, O Magazine, and others, and an excerpt of her forthcoming novel, Evening Begins the Day, I love that title, by the way, uh, will be published in June by Image Magazine. And do you have a publication date for that novel yet? Um, yeah, and I'm not really supposed to be announcing anything okay, correct, about it. But next spring is 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 what Excellent. we're talking about. So. Okay, right, wonderful. Okay, let's go back to Night Swim, though, uh, your first novel. It must be strange to be going back to your first novel. I have to say it was, um, and, and kind of surprising in a good way, because I hadn't read it in about eight years. So when we decided to do it, you know, I went back and had to read through it again. And I looked at it a little bit differently, but uh, still feeling good about it. That's but good. I think, yeah. So that's good. I'm not sure. I try to not read my early stuff because <laughs> I, I tend to be very, very self-critical. Okay. Um, can you give us a quick summary of the book? Uh, yeah. It's um, a story of a dysfunctional Jewish family set in 1970 Boston. Um, and it's also a coming of age story that's wrapped into that. Um, and it's narrated by uh, Sarah Kunitz, who's um, looking back at a very pivotal time in her life when there's a tragedy that upends the family and shatters it. And, you know, the the novel explores the how, how does anyone regain footing and find a way out of their grief and chaos? Okay, great. Okay, let's listen to, now she has a prelude instead of a prologue, which we'll also talk about why she did that. And then I'm going to have her read just the first little bit of the first chapter so you can hear her transition from one to another. Okay, Jessica, go ahead. Okay, thanks. So prelude to Night Swim. Mickey Feinberg's email brings everything back again. Hi, Sarah. Remembering those good old days in the neighborhood, saw your CDs online, sampled the links. Wow, impressive. How did you end up in California? I kissed Mickey under a broken pool table in my basement. We were eight, his lips warm as Play-Doh, pressing with earnest intention. I pressed back, happy and unafraid, oblivious to Mickey's younger brother watching us. That night at the dinner table, mother looked stern and surprised. She said, Mickey's mother called me. You're too young to start, Sarah. Start what, I wondered. I do a quick search online. His company bio says he resides in Greenwich, Connecticut after living in London for 23 years. Married with three children, I write Mickey back. Thank you so much. I moved west after high school, just read your company bio. Did you like living overseas? Mickey answers right away. Loved London. New England is a shock. Remember those fires we burned? Can you believe our parents let us do that? 
I write, your dad wasn't too happy about it. In the fall, Mickey's dad and my father rake leaves from our lawns, scraping and pushing leaves into piles on our small dead-end street, then setting those leafy mounds aflame. Mickey and I poked at truant sparks. We lit sticks and spun smoky spirals in the air. Another message, lost dad last year. Mom's doing pretty well in assisted living, but her memory's gone. What about your father? I write back, so sorry to hear that. My father lives with his second wife in Florida. He can't walk, bad hips, but his memory is intact. Mickey lived next door. I knew the Feinbergs the way I knew the border of fir trees, dividing our properties, always there, a part of my neighborhood. That kiss was a childhood game we played once like other games, like war or kickball or hide and seek, nothing more. His dad was someone who waved to me from behind a lawnmower. Then Mickey writes, I hope this doesn't sound too personal, but you're up late. I've been through this hundreds of times, this stirring about the house at 3, 4 a.m., this deep hour when people closest in my life, Alan, my husband, and three sons, dissolve like particles in a sea. Time at this hour doesn't follow lines, but circles and dips into underwater caves. My kids all live on the East Coast, postgrads in Maine, Vermont, and Massachusetts. Alan would be asleep in our bed, but he's in New York on a business trip. I write one last time. So nice to hear from you after so many years. Thanks for getting in touch. Then I turn off the computer, switch off my desk light, and in the darkness move down the hall to bed, returning to the past for answers, skipping as it is easy to do in my older mind from one year to the next, to a place that is no longer there. It's as if I'm swimming toward forever, only backwards. Now, chapter one, the dinner table. I grew up in a six-bedroom house in Sequasset, Massachusetts. Nobody spelled the name of our town correctly. Letters came to our house that said Sequashit or Sequatics or Socket. And Massachusetts always invited too many S's and not enough T's. The town, seven miles inland, was close enough to water by car, but a good hour north of Boston. In the 50s and 60s, the town flourished and became known for its excellent school system in lush neighborhoods. By the time I turned seven, mother let me, the second oldest and only daughter of four, walk to Sequasset Square without an adult. Our blue clappered house had slanted ceilings in the attic bedrooms where my oldest and youngest brother slept, window seats in the den, and closets full of mother's gowns, high-heeled shoes, and cedar shoehorns. Neighbors admired our house for its stained glass windows in the turn of the stairs and in the dining room windows facing west. At dinner time, when the sun exited the front yard, it left a trail of orange shadows across my plate. Anybody home? Hello, anybody home? On weeknights, at a quarter to six, father trudged up our, our driveway, flung open the kitchen door, and bellowed his greeting as if he expected our house to be empty and the furniture cleared out. He was a tenured professor at a small private college who rarely modulated his voice between podium and pantry. To think there might be a difference didn't occur to Professor Leonard Kunitz. Hello? Irene, I'm home. The kitchen door closed with a determined thud. Irene, coming, Leonard. In harmonic contrast, mother floated down from the bedroom to meet him for a pre-dinner drink. She moved without gravity, a cumulative effect of her pain pills, the ones she took three times a day. Together in the den, father flipped two shots of vodka down his throat, while mother drank scotch with a twist of lime and one ice cube. And there. Wonderful. Okay. Now let's go back to the beginning. Why did you choose to call this 
Uh, well, first off, let me start. Were these always your first pages? No, no. Yeah. Um, and how, do, how did they come to be your first pages? I had written um, the story over years and, you know, in some ways it seemed that first chapter where I, I start into the family and into the house seemed a logical place to begin, but it was important. I wanted to give the whole story a framework that she was looking back mm -hmm. and that this would be infused with perhaps a wiser um, point of view, because most of the story is told from when Sarah, the setting and this pivotal time is when she's about 16 and an adolescent and coming of age. And so that it allowed me to, to bring perhaps a little more uh, sort of wiser, mature sensibility in that voice. Mm -hmm. and, so, and then do you go back to the older voice throughout the book or only at the end? Periodically, just yeah. touch points. Um, one I call an interlude mm -hmm. and, you know, in the ending it's a coda. So again, these, these musical uh, phrases and musical terms, which was also intentional because music plays a huge part in this book. Yeah. Um, and I have seen that. So I, I, we've been talking to a lot of writers and I'm seeing a lot of prologues, which in the industry is supposed to be a no-no, but I personally love prologues and I think it works very well here. And the prologues that we've I've seen so far, a lot of them have started with a kind of flash forward um, and they kind of give a certain weight to when we go back in time to read the story, kind of sets up stakes, kind of shows that um, the character's undergone a large period of change. And um, with yours, did you ever have to deal with the problem of having that that younger character um, and having agents and editors think it was a YA novel? Um, or did you ever have that problem? I don't know if it was a problem. I mean, I think I remember once someone's thinking that it sort of was on the line of YA adult, but it wasn't quite YA because again, um, so, and and maybe I don't, I didn't even care because at some point, um, I don't know, I do get frustrated with some of these lines that, that yeah. the industry draws. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah, it does take place. She's 16 and she's going through a coming of age um, situation, um, but, it, but it is, it left a lasting impact, you know, impact on her as an adult. Right. Um, and the voice is definitely adult. Yeah. Um, but there are, for those of you that are working on a novel that has a younger narrator or younger protagonist, um, doing a, a reminiscent narrator or starting when the narrator is, or when the character is older in a kind of prologue, um, if you want to name it, that is a good way to signal to the reader um, that this is an adult novel. Okay. Now you called this, what's the difference to you between a prelude and a prologue? Just the musical reference that is again, so important. Um, the mother was a, um, a gifted violinist and then she got arthritis and wasn't unable to play. Sarah uh, leans on her, she's, she's a singer and her brother is also a singer and they really um, seek out music as, as a place of escape and also healing and also a way of centering and finding identity. So, um, and also I think the thing about music is it takes you outside of language. Yeah. Um, I, I love just that idea too of, um, of, of, yeah, so. 
Yes. Um, and so when we go to the beginning, the use of the email is a wonderful way to kind of uh, walk on both sides of the timeline here. She's both in the present, but at, at the very first sentences brings everything back again. So we're basically almost in both timelines um, because even as she's reading through the email, she's thinking back about certain, certain glimpses of scenes of her childhood. And we also find out some probably inf important information. Saw your CDs online, sampled the links. Wow, impressive. So we know that she's been um, successful in some way, even if we haven't read the jacket copy to know that she's a musician at this point. Um, I also love this flash of innocence here uh, with the mother saying, Mickey's mother called me. You're too young to start, Sarah. And the mother is predicting that Sarah knows all of this and Sarah is still in her innocence. Start what, I wondered. Now, why was it important to you to kind of, you have two glimpses here. You have this and then you have them playing with fire. Mm -hmm. um, so you have characters that are basically at the cusp of danger. And is mm -hmm. there a reason why you chose those, those glimpses that you chose here? Um, to set up the rest of the story. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, it's so funny because sometimes these things come unconsciously and then it's only later that I, it sort of makes sense to me. But there was definitely a sense of of, of wanting this playing with fire. Absolutely. Um, the reference that she was able to go to town by herself at, at seven, um, you know, Mickey saying, can you believe our parents let us do this? This feeling of kids sort of on the loose, not highly monitored, um, during this time, which I know is so different maybe than how it, it is now, where people are watching every second of the moment, you know, of the day. Um, and and I wanted the mother, uh, that, that reference to don't start, that the mother, you know, sort of an intimation of the mother projecting something onto her daughter that this eight-year-old couldn't possibly have any idea about in terms of sexuality and and where that could lead to. Mm -hmm. um so I and want then, yeah. great and then we get so I'm always suspicious why a guy would shoot an email to an old you know friend in the middle of the night um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know is, is his marriage going wrong is there something going on and we do get that line later he says then Mickey then Mickey writes I hope this doesn't doesn't sound too personal but you're up late and then you don't finish that um, instead, she goes into the hours that she's awake, and that promises some disturbance in her adult life. Um, and then what I, I think I love most about this is that she just signs off. So nice to hear from you. Thanks for getting in touch, even though he seems to obviously to be trying to lead her somewhere. And that's not where I thought the scene was going to go. Um, did you play around with that a lot? Did you know how that would turn at the end? I, I think that what happens when we've grown up as children with some people, you know, let's say a childhood friend like this person who was in the neighborhood, there is a certain uh, familiarity and knowledge that we kind of don't even understand or realize. Um, and I think this has happened a lot with Facebook and emails in general and all, you know, where people sort of read, refinding old high school friends or this or that. Um, and it, you know, there is this kind of familiarity and yet there are these boundaries that we're trying to cross or not cross. Yeah. And how much to tell, not tell. Um, clearly she didn't want to go there. Um, yeah. 
Um, um, and, and she's, and she's the, and it tells us a lot about her too, because she signs off so quickly and it's almost, she's polite about it, but it's, it's almost to the point of rudeness. So she definitely has her boundaries, mm-hmm. um, particularly as an adult. Um, so I think that sets up her character quite a lot. Then we move into the first chapter. Um, now you said this is where you originally had started the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but you found the frame for the book after you had finished a draft. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Many drafts. Many, yeah. <laughs> many drafts. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me how many Not drafts did it take you? <laughs> and we're like, you don't, you don't want to know how many drafts. No. Um, the Same. house is obviously very important here. Um, yeah and the sense of place. And can you talk about why um, you started with the house and this strong sense of place? I really wanted to convey a sense of, you know, that, that this was a beautiful house, really. I mean, it's a grand house, it's six bedrooms and, and you know, and the reference to the neighbors liking, you know, the sta- you know, admiring the stained glass windows, that there's a certain pride about the house, but it's this container um, and then as the novel unfolds, you'll see that this pretty container uh, is holding a lot of chaos and and not pretty stuff. And I'm very interested in that dyma- dynamic. You know, when you drive to a pretty neighborhood and people go, oh my God, that life must be perfect in that house with that lawn. And I'm like, you know, my immediate reaction is no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I'm always thinking that, there's, you know, what are they hiding somewhere? Or there's something hidden somewhere, but um, so I just am interested in in um, you know the mask of appearances and, and, and that can disguise sort of what's really going on, right? Because it otherwise seems quite idyllic. Um, yeah. And then I really like how you introduce the father and the mother in such contrasting ways, and you do it through their physicality more so than just exposition. So we actually see the father entering the house. Father trudged up the driveway, flung up at the kitchen door, and bellowed his greeting as if he expected our house to be empty and the furniture cleared out. Then we do get the information that he's a tenured professor, um, and that's part of his boldness, at least for him. Uh, And then we get the contrast of the mother. And you even say, in harmonic contrast, you pick up that musical note again. Mother floated down from the bedroom to meet him for a pre-dinner drink. Um, And so the contrast between the two is perfect. And I just think, I I was also thinking, wow, they're drinking a lot. And she's on pain pills. (laughs) So so that that was surprising, too. It's also a time period thing, I think. Um, That was interesting. So um, the cocktail the cocktail hour, uh, the beloved cocktail hour. So when you took this, when you were selling this book, did you already have the prelude or did you add that later with the, with your editors? No, I had the prelude. Yeah. And did they react in a certain way to it? Did they want you to make any changes to these first two chapters? Um, no, I, no, I didn't have that response. I had a response. A response of people not, uh, you know, liking the whole novel, but not sure what to do with it. And I think again, it might have been that it was that. What category do we put this in? Um, Adult versus why? Yeah. Or yeah. you know, it has a a, a, a memoirish feeling to it as well. Right. Um, and I was okay with all of that, to be honest. So, um, you know. It, and also, I'm going to just tell you that when Night's Woman went out, 
Uh, Chick Lit was huge. I don't know if you ever remember that. Yeah. Time. Mm -hmm. I, I even had an agent trying to to cast this as a dark Chick Lit. <laughs> really? Which I have to say, I was like, I almost loved him for that because he was trying so hard to wedge in because it was just overwhelming. This this you know wave of Chick Lit. Um, yeah that came out you know with the shoes and you know the pink covers and everything and and my novel just didn't fit into that it was it's, it's just darker and yeah. deals with some hard subjects so um and that's really important to look for because you'll send your book out to agents you'll get most writers get a lot of rejections these days most writers don't hear from the agent at all. It's become very ordinary to ghost people um, and never give any response at all. So if you get that kind of reaction to your book, don't feel like you're the only one because it's happening a lot. Um, agents are really, really overwhelmed. Um, and there's a lot of talk about agent burnout these days. They, they have a hard time keeping up with their work. But then you also will have agents and editors that have a particular vision of the book and they might get very excited about that vision and they'll talk to you about it, but it might be completely different than what you intend. Um, so this was an agent I'm assuming that you talked to and you just said no thanks and went on to another agent or did you continue with this agent? Oh, um, I think that it, he was someone who took, uh, I went on with to another agent and, yeah. and really I, I and then ended up selling it myself. Oh, to fantastic. Small, to a small independent press. Um, it was a painful process. I mean, oh, I'm sure. Get real here. It was, I I really believed in my book. Um, and that's not such an easy thing to do either, you know, because, but I did see this wave of, of a kind of book. And I want to say too that publishing, not only, you know, editors and, and agents may be busy, but there are waves of, and there are trends. And something that's you know becomes big and it's it's in or whatever it is and it's it's a reality it, it's just there um mm -hmm. and they sell that book and if you're not writing that book but you need to write a certain book um then you're in this dilemma do mm -hmm. i want to write the book they're looking for when three years from now it may not be the book they're looking for or do i want to find another way to publish this book that i really care about and we feel is important to to get out there for its own sake how, how long did you did it take you to make that decision to decide, well, I'm just going to go on my own and go directly to publishers myself? Yeah, it, it, I came to a very desperate place, I have to yeah. be honest. I mean, yeah. I really was about to just put it aside. And I'd already yeah. put one novel aside in the closet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet at the same time, I had taken a lot of these pieces from the novel and they were, I had published them in numerous places and I'd gotten a grant based on some of the chapters. So I'd had a lot of sort of, of a lot, maybe four different editors from magazines, you know, literary magazines, and then also a grant sort of telling me that there was something here enough that was appealing to different readers, you know, um, not just one reader. So um, I had- Well, and then the book came out and it was a bestseller. Yeah. And it did well. It's, it did know, well. It was everywhere. I remember when this book came out. You know, and it was reviewed in the New York Times and that seemed like a miracle in the Boston Globe, all, you know, all that standard and publishers weekly, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it just felt miraculous, but I really was at a point, I had a conversation with a friend, pretty desperate, like really at the end. And, and she said, well, just try this 
try this guy. I know he's starting a new press, whatever. And I sent it to him and he wrote back and said, I want to publish this. And I, I really didn't believe, I almost couldn't accept it because I'd heard so many variations of rejections. Um, and, the, and the weird thing is I'd had no trouble finding an agent for this book either. So, right. um, and then when it did get published and there was the review in the New York Times, one of the agents that I didn't go with, you know, cause I, there were two that had wanted it at one point, wrote to me and said, if you're still unagented, I'd love to, to you know, represent you. And I, but I had already gone with someone else and eventually I did go back to her. <laughs> so uh, for another book, which I right. sold, which she sold. But um, I, it was a very difficult, long process of years, you know, and putting yeah. away for a while. And, um, but I just believed in it, I guess. Good, good. Well, and and now it's... I don't know. Stupidity. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't think it was stupidity, but I do think every writer needs a little bit of stupidity to, to go into this business in the first place, because well, it is pretty damn hard. It yeah. is hard. And and you, it really takes, you know, you, you, you can't, I, I never became hard skinned or thick skinned. I'm still not thick skinned, you know? Right. So you um, just, yeah, you don't have to become thick skinned. You just need to learn some survival basics. Yeah, you do. Right. Ways to take care of yourself. Um, so again, looking back now after 10 years, um, now personally, I don't even listen to the audiobooks of my books because I just, you know, <laughs> I, I wince under some of it and I just can't even, um, uh, so how did you, how do you see the book differently now? Um, are there things that you might do differently now? Um, what do you think about these early pages and your choices? Um, you know, I think we're, I'm certainly prey to being so self-critical to the point of erasing myself from existence. Yeah. So yeah. I have, to, I feel that I have to be careful of that, you know. Um, I I think that I feel that I wrote this book and, and that I feel that it stands. And, you know, if I were to write this tour again, would I write it in a different way? Probably. I, I suppose so, right? I'm, I've, gone You're through a different, different person things. now. I've even become a mother. I was, you know, mm -hmm. I think I was a new mother when I wrote, no, I was, I don't know, whatever. I wasn't a mother when I started and I was a mother, like that changed things, but for how I, how, how I saw this book, but, um, um, I'm actually kind of proud of this book. I'm, I'm just gonna amazing. Good. Because, awesome. you know, it's, you know, when you go down that place of wanting to change and, oh, I could have do it in this way. Um, Again, like I said, I, I I can go there so easily. I've had to really train myself to be careful. Because um, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it can be a dark road. Good. All right, everyone, be good to yourself. We're going to end on that. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past to crazy writing challenges. We did a 50-day challenge and a 31-day challenge. So there's a lot of great info there, a lot of great writers and authors and teachers. Um, you can also find all of those episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. So Jessica, ask you one last question, which is a big one. What advice would you give authors about their own first pages? Uh, okay. Yeah, this is just a huge question. I come to, I, I struggle a lot and think a lot about the opening, how to enter a scene, how to enter the novel. Um, and I certainly did with this many times, um, shifting 
chapters around and then finally coming to this frame and feeling that it was right, but came to it at the really at the sort of end phase of of drafting and drafting over, in my case, many years because I'm not a fast writer. So I would just say, um, really tune into your instinct. And if it's not feeling right, be brave enough to try to switch it around. And if if you switch around and the other one or the original way feels better, then go back to it. But, um, you know, you have to play around and also trust your instinct and understand really why it's there too. I think that's important. Absolutely. So understand why. Understand the why. Okay, we will end with that. Thank you so much, Jessica, and good luck on your 50-state tour uh, for the new edition of this book. It's very exciting, and I'm sure people will eat it up. And everyone else, let's get you back to your writing desk and back to your own first pages. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle.